Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode is going to be a follow-up of sorts to the previous episode in which I interviewed my colleague, Dr. Michael Steinman of UCSF, about the American Geriatric Society uh, updated Beers criteria for potentially inappropriate medication use in older adults. And so in that episode, which was episode 88, Dr. Steinman explained what is the Beers criteria. So he was a member of the experts panel that helped author this list. And to briefly recap, the Beers criteria is this very carefully reviewed and selected list of medications that are considered risky for older adults. So this is a really important resource for us in geriatrics because it's basically the list of medications that the scientific evidence suggests are riskier for older people and that we should be careful with. And the first version of the list was started in 1991 by a geriatrician, and since then it's been revised, it's been updated, it's been expanded, and now the American Geriatric Society has this very in-depth process of reviewing it carefully and issuing an update every few years. And so Dr. Steinman, who has a lot of uh, expertise in medication safety for older adults, was on the expert panel, and he described some of what goes into their process and medication safety. So that's a great episode, and if you haven't already listened, I really encourage you to do so because Dr. Steinman's also a a fun person to listen to. So why am I doing a follow-up? Well, In the previous episode with Dr. Simon, we were able to discuss mostly two types of medication included in the Beers criteria, which were anticholinergics and sedatives. But of course, there's much more to the Beers criteria. I mean, this is a very um, lengthy list, and it's actually a series of lists. It's organized into a series of tables that includes at least 30 individual medications or medication classes that most older adults uh, would ideally avoid, and another 40 medications that should be used with caution if you have certain diseases or conditions. So it really wasn't feasible in the interview, and it's not going to be feasible in this episode to just read out a list of everything that's in the Beers criteria. What I wanted to do is that after I interviewed Dr. Steinman, I wrote an article for Better Health While Aging about the Beers criteria because I hadn't written about it for a while, and I focused on the latest update. And in doing that, I actually ended up including uh, my own list of the Beers criteria medications that I find especially relevant to look out for. And so I wanted to share that with you on the podcast and also a recap of my top tips for how you can use the Beers criteria and be safer 
in regards to uh, medication use in aging, whether you're an older person over age 65, or whether you're helping your aging parents or another older loved one look out for their medications. And before I go into my sort of shorter summary of the medications that are that I think are most relevant to look out for, I do want to acknowledge something that people brought up after I published the article on better health while aging. And what people brought up is that this year, the American Geriatric Society has so far chosen to not make the their document with the full list of the beers criteria tables. They've chosen to not make it uh, publicly available. So in the past, they have a consumer-facing website called healthandaging.org, which is actually a great resource to find geriatrics information written for the public. So in the past, they have posted their lists, and, and the Beers Criteria document usually includes several different lists of medications. So for instance, in the most recent document, which is the 2019 update, they have uh, one list of medications which are potentially inappropriate in most older adults. And potentially inappropriate means that in most older adults, the likely risks of using the medication outweigh the likely benefits, especially when compared with other treatment options. So they have a list of of the medications that are potentially inappropriate. And then they have another list, which is potentially inappropriate in older adults with certain conditions. So conditions such as a history of falls, that's super relevant to a lot of older people, or in older people who are experiencing delirium, or who are experiencing dementia, or maybe have specific health diagnoses, such as Parkinson's. So that's a, that's a different table. And many medications might be in both tables, but you know they organize that information to tables. They also have another table of medications that should be used with caution, in older adults, so that means drugs for which there's some cause for concern, but for which the evidence is not yet sufficient to merit inclusion in the main list of medications that are potentially inappropriate. They have another table with clinically important drug-drug interactions that we should avoid in older adults. Um, And they have a few more tables. So in, in short, this is a very rich resource. And when they last did the update, which was in 2015, they actually posted versions of several of these tables on health and aging available to the public. The update before that, the 2012 update, I remember there was a public translation PDF that was available on their website and that you could download. And actually, just between us, if you Google right now, you can probably still find it. Let me just check. Yep, you can. So I didn't post a link to it in my article because uh, it's out of date, right? This is the list from 2012. But yes, for now, if you Google, it is actually still available. If you Google Beers Criteria Public Translation. So that's what they did in the past. And this year, they have so far opted to not make the full list available to the public. So there, uh, I have already had a number of complaints about this. When I published my article last week, uh, I, of course, cannot list all the medications in the beers list in an article on my website. First of all, I I think, you know, I'd have a long list of medications and I'm not sure that would be very uh, useful, but most importantly, it's copyrighted and you can't just take somebody else's copyrighted work and post it publicly available on your own site. That's copyright infringement. So many people have expressed uh, distress that it's not publicly available. So if you wanted to see 
the list. What could you do? Uh, you can purchase the article from the American Geriatric Society. I think it costs $30 or $35. Um, they also have a pocket card that you can purchase. That's more like $8 to $10, depending on whether you get a hard copy or a PDF printable. Or what some people have uh, said is that they've been able to obtain it from their public library. And um, there's also sometimes the possibility that your health provider might be able to, to help you access a copy or a pharmacist. So I did want to acknowledge that right at the beginning that I'm going to be sharing with you really categories of medications that I think are especially useful to look out for. And if, if you want to look up the exact names of the medications yourself, you are going to have to do a little uh, legwork. Now, in some of the articles on Better Health While Aging, I list to other articles where I have you know more examples. So that's that's an option. But yes, right now there's no easy way for me to provide you with the comprehensive list that you can follow along with. And, uh, and I apologize for that. And uh, one never knows, it's possible that eventually a public version of the 2019 Beers criteria will become available, but for now we don't have it. So with that, let me now tell you about the risky medications that I do pay particular attention to. And I'm going to be focusing right now on certain uh, groupings of medications. This is how I think of them, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to think of them this way too. So again, there are lots and lots of medications on the beers criteria list, and some of them are more relevant than others. And that's because some of these medications are medications that are widely used by many older adults, probably by many of you listening. And now you listening may now have an inkling that this is potentially a risky medication, but um, many people within the public have no idea that they are taking a potentially inappropriate medication. But there are lots of other medications on the Beers criteria list that are not being used by many people or are older medications that have somewhat fallen out of favor. Or for instance, you know, barbiturates are on the Beers list. Well, hardly anyone is prescribing barbiturates these, uh, these days. So I think if you, if you don't have a little guidance, you could get kind of lost in the long list of medications. And that's why I wanted to share with you my categorizing of medications that I consider especially relevant to most older adults. They're the ones that I um, one spot on people's medications list quite a lot and two often attempt to de-prescribe. And three, I often mention them in articles in Better Health While Aging or in podcast episodes. So let's go over those. Here are the ones that I uh, especially look out for. So I have five categories that I'm going to call out. So first and foremost, and this is a biggie, is the four types of medications that affect brain function. So I do have an article on better health while aging uh, that I wrote a few years ago on this topic, which is called four types of brain slowing medication to avoid if you're worried about memory. Well, in the latest 2019 update of the Beers criteria, in their section where they list medications to look out for, in people with the condition of dementia or cognitive impairment, they actually list the same four categories of medication that I listed in my article a few years ago. This doesn't mean that I was particularly insightful. This actually means that this is a mainstay of geriatric knowledge that has not changed over the last several years with new research. So we continue to have good evidence that these medications are worth avoiding 
especially in people who have dementia or kind of impairment. And so the four types of medication are one, anticholinergics, which Dr. Steinman and I talked about in the interview. And I also covered them in depth in a podcast episode, which was episode 73. Next is benzodiazepines. So uh, those are medications like Valium, Ativan, uh, Xanax, often prescribed for uh, insomnia or anxiety. And Dr. Steinman referred to those in the interview as well. Uh, next are the non-benzodiazepine sedatives, also sometimes called the Z-drugs. These are medications like uh, Zolpidem, brand name Ambien, that are often prescribed for insomnia. And then the last one is antipsychotics which among older adults are most commonly prescribed off-label to manage difficult dementia behaviors. Those classes of medications are also all listed as medications to avoid in people who have delirium or are at high risk of delirium. So those are just four important categories of medication to be aware of and to look out for. So the next group of medications that I consider especially relevant for most older adults and that I think is worth you knowing about are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So these uh, include common over-the-counter painkillers such as ibuprofen, brand name Advil, and naproxen, brand name Aleve, as well as prescription strength non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which are often prescribed for arthritis and other pain. Uh, I'm not going to go into the risks of these medications right now. Uh, I do have an article on better health while aging that I will link to in the show notes. And also I covered that in the podcast episode number 31. Uh, briefly, they can affect, uh, they do affect kidney function. They can make high blood pressure worse and they increase the risk of internal bleeding and also can be associated with higher rates of cardiovascular events. So does that mean an older person should never, ever take them? Of course not. And that goes for all the beers list uh, medications, in fact. It's not that these medications are always wrong to take, but it's that since they are riskier as people get older, one wants to be thoughtful and careful before proceeding or continuing to take them. And later on in the episode, uh, I'll cover, you know, again, my tips and how I think you can think about this and ask better questions to maximize your your chance of benefiting from your medicines and minimize your chance of being harmed. So next group of medications that I look out for, this is actually basically a single medication, but it's aspirin. And that's for the prevention of cardiovascular events in people who have not had a heart attack or a stroke and specifically on people who are age 70 plus. So you might remember that a while back, there was a, a tendency to prescribe a preventive aspirin to lots of older people because we thought that it would help prevent heart attacks and strokes. And it does help prevent heart attacks and strokes. And in people who have not already had a heart attack or stroke, the likelihood that the daily aspirin is going to prevent one is actually very, very small and smaller than the likelihood that the person will get some internal bleeding and ulcer or other form of bleeding from the daily aspirin because that's one of the risks of daily aspirin. And so quite recently, this spring in 2019, the American College of Cardiology issued uh, its updated guidelines on cardiovascular prevention, and they really recommended against preventive aspirin 
uh, in people who are age 70 plus because the evidence has become so compelling that for the most part, the risk of harm outweighs the risk of benefit. Now, that only goes for people who have never had a heart attack, a stroke, or another sign of what we would call clinically evident cardiovascular disease. There are a few less uh, common forms. And by stroke, we mean really a, a major noticeable stroke. In people who have had a heart attack or stroke, aspirin is recommended as part of what we call um, secondary prevention. So prevention in somebody who has never had the problem is called primary prevention. And prevention in somebody who has had the problem, who has had a heart attack or a stroke, is called secondary prevention. In general, your risk for having some kind of health problem, uh, the number one risk factor is already having had it. So the number one risk factor for falling is already having falls. And the number one risk factor for having a heart attack or stroke is having had a previous one. So in those people where it's secondary prevention, the likelihood of benefiting from a daily aspirin uh, is higher. And so it outweighs that little risk of bleeding. So when I look at somebody's medication list, if I see a daily aspirin on it, I do want to find out whether they have already had a heart attack or stroke and whether that's for secondary prevention or primary prevention. And if it's for primary prevention and the person is over age 70, then we want to think about whether we should deprescribe that preventive aspirin. Okay, next on my list of common relevant medications to look out for are proton pump inhibitors. So these are medications that reduce stomach acids such as omeprazole, brand name Prilosec. So that was the little purple pill that was the breakthrough heartburn drug uh, many years ago. And now we have several others such as esomeprazole, brand name Nexium, and others. These are medications that have become very widely prescribed and it's now um, acknowledged that they are overprescribed. And so in the 2019 update of the Beers Criteria for Potentially Inappropriate Medications, uh, proton pump inhibitors are listed in the main table of potentially inappropriate medications. And the recommendation is that older adults should avoid scheduled use for more than eight weeks unless they are high-risk patients who are, for instance, taking medications known to irritate the stomach or have some other kind of demonstrated um, factors that make them at, at higher need and more likely to benefit. And if you would like to learn more about proton pump inhibitors and whether you still need them and how you might dis, uh, work with your health providers to discontinue them, I'm going to link to an excellent brochure from the Canadian D Prescribing Network that's an organization that Dr. Kara Tenenbaum, the geriatrician who sort of has done a lot of work on deprescribing, we had her on the podcast for episode 46. The Canadian Deprescribing Network has some excellent brochures for regular people explaining several of these medications that older adults often don't benefit from. And so I'll post a link to the one about proton pump inhibitors, and they actually also have them for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and for some of the other medications that I've referred to in this episode. So I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. And that's a great resource if you want to learn more and um, have some help getting started on reviewing why you're taking these medicines and whether you need to continue them. And then the fifth category of medications that I look out for uh, quite a lot 
This one's a bigger group, and it's medications to avoid or use with caution if there is a history of falls or fractures. So this is called out in the 2019 update of the BEERS criteria. It's in their table, again, where they list medications to be especially careful about based on certain conditions. So they do have the condition listed as, quote, history of falls or fractures. And as you know, falls are a very important uh, issue that we try to address in geriatrics. So the uh, 2019 BEERS criteria list for what types of medications to avoid unless safer alternatives are not available if an older person has a history of falls or fractures include uh, one, anti-epileptics. These are also known as anti-convulsants. They are sometimes used off-label for difficult dementia behaviors and then are also sometimes used to treat nerve pain or migraines. Then they also list uh, antipsychotics, again, which I was mentioning, benzodiazepines, again, non-benzodiazepine sedatives. So those would be the, um, the Z-drug sleeping pills, such as Zolpidem, brand name Ativan. And now I do want to mention that there are a couple other categories of medication that I pay attention to in people who are concerned about falls. I described them in episode 34, and I also have a related article. So uh, the additional medications that I think about are medications related to blood pressure that is recommended by the Center for Disease Control guidelines for fall prevention. And then I also look at medications that affect blood sugar, because in people who older adults who do have diabetes and are on medications that lower their blood sugar, having blood sugar that is too low is fairly common, definitely makes people weak and wobbly and is associated with falls. So that's my shorter list of medications that I especially look out for in older adults. Now, I want to briefly say a few words about opioid pain medications. So these are the stronger narcotic quote-unquote painkillers, such as uh, morphine and oxycodone. As you know, they've been in the news a lot because uh, we do have an opioid crisis going on in the nation with many people uh, abusing these medicines, lots of overdoses, and lots of extra deaths, unfortunately. Now, these are occurring mostly among people who are younger than 65, as far as I know, but it's also causing us to rethink in geriatrics uh, our use of these medicines. I mean, we've always known that these are strong painkillers that we want to be very careful about, but there's certainly more concern about the potential for addiction now, even among people who are in their 70s and 80s, than when I trained. So you may be wondering, are opioids on the list of medications that the Beers criteria list of medications that older adults should avoid or use with caution? And the interesting thing is that um, they are not in the main list. They are, uh, there's only one of them, one particular one called meperidine, which again is not used very often right now. That was one that was especially associated with delirium and confusion. So only meperidine is listed in the main list of potentially inappropriate medications for older adults. Does that mean that they're not medications to use with caution? Of course not. It means that, first of all, the Beers criteria is intended to focus um, not on all medications that are risky and should be used with caution in the entire population, but the ones that are risky and should be used with caution, especially in older adults. So if it's a medication that's considered risky for everyone and doesn't get particularly more risky as people get older, then generally they would think about not including it in the Beers criteria. 
So opioids do appear elsewhere in the Beers criteria other than the sort of primary table of potentially inappropriate medications. They, uh, as I mentioned, are listed as medications to be careful about in people who have had falls or fractures, although they do say that the quality of the evidence for opiates is moderate, whereas the quality of the evidence for the other medications I mentioned, increase in fall risk is high. And then opioids are featured in a special table reporting important drug-drug interactions to be very careful about. So they do mention that one should be very careful about using opioids at the same time as benzodiazepine sedatives or at the same time as other medications that affect brain function. So now that I've covered some particular uh, medications and especially categories of medications that I pay attention to in my usual work, let me move on to my tips for how you can use this information and what you can do about medication safety for older adults. So Dr. Steinman's advice, which he shared in his episode, I completely agree with, was, you know, essentially be proactive. So we do have a lot of information now available regarding which medications are risky for older adults and how to manage medications more safely. And yet it is still very common for older adults to experience inappropriate prescribing, to be prescribed medications where the risk of harm is likely to outweigh the risk of benefit. And often those risks haven't been discussed with them. And Dr. Simon addressed some of the reasons why this is so common in his interview. And I really believe that most health providers are well-intentioned and caring, but they're often very busy and they're just lacking the time and the resources and the supportive systems that they need to be more careful about medications. So if you want to improve your chances of using medications safely, or if you're involved in the healthcare of an aging parent or another older relative, here are some suggestions for specific things you can do. So first of all, I would say, you know, right now or as soon as you can, when you get a chance, think about reviewing your medications and try to find out if any of them are listed in the Beers criteria. So as I mentioned earlier, at this time, the full list is not publicly available on healthandaging.org and the official journal article with all the information is behind a firewall. It's published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. And unless you have a subscription, a personal subscription, or most of us, many of us as health providers have institutional subscriptions through the universities we work with, unless you have that, then you have to pay to purchase it. Um, so that's inconvenient, but uh, there are other ways to find out if your medications are on the list. So for instance, pharmacists are a great resource and are probably underused. So you could take your list of medications and be sure to include your over-the-counter medications. You could take that list to a pharmacist and ask them to help you identify which ones are on the beers list. Now, if you find you are taking one of these medications, don't panic. Again, it's not necessarily wrong for an older person to take one of these medications. It just mostly means that this is a medication to be extra thoughtful about, extra thoughtful about starting, extra thoughtful about monitoring for side effects, and extra thoughtful about coming back to the medication and revisiting, do we still need to be using this medication? Or is there another way to manage whatever the medication was prescribed for? So Health and Aging does have a helpful resource titled What to Do and What to Ask if a Medication You Take is Listed in the Beers Criteria. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Next thing, suggestion, 
Number two, always ask questions when a new medication is being prescribed to make sure you understand why it's being prescribed and to confirm that it makes sense to proceed with the medication. I mean, the truth is that the American healthcare system and most healthcare providers do tend to prescribe quickly because it's fast, it's easy. Pharma companies have encouraged us to do so. And there are often alternative ways to manage a condition and it often takes a little bit more time or work even to discuss it with the patient. So you should realize that the, unless you speak up and ask more questions, you're, you're probably, you're often going to get a prescription <laughs> for a certain health condition. And that's not necessarily bad, but it's always a good idea to ask extra questions and, and be proactive about encouraging this careful thought process about the prescribing. So some specific questions that I recommend older adults and families ask would be, could this medication affect my balance or thinking? Because that would be true of many medications that are anticholinergic or um, that are sedatives. So that's a kind of shorthand way to help spot those medicines. You could also ask, is this medication listed in the Beers criteria? I also recommend uh, asking your health provider, can you please review with me what is the expected benefit of this medication and what are the likely risks? I also recommend asking, are there any safer or non-drug approaches to treatment that I should be aware of? And lastly, are there any particular side effects I should look out for? So next, suggestion number three is ask to review medications after hospital discharge or a move from one healthcare location to another. So Dr. Steinman alluded to this in the interview, but we know that um, hospitalization is a time when people are especially likely to be prescribed additional medications that may or may not be appropriate in that moment and often are not appropriate to continue long term. That said, often people come out of the hospital on a bunch of new medications and somehow unless the older person and family are proactive, um, it's fairly common for all those medications to just stay on the list, in part because the primary provider doesn't get around to figuring out exactly why they were prescribed and whether they're still necessary. So ideally, your healthcare, your usual healthcare provider would carefully describe your post-discharge medications, but they may not unless you request it. So I want to encourage you to request this after hospitalization. I just want to encourage you to be aware that we know this is a time when extra medications get added and many of them can be deprescribed fairly soon after hospitalization. So ask about it. And if you don't have a usual health provider, you can still re- request an appointment post-hospitalization with a doctor, nurse, or pharmacist to carefully review the medications and discuss whether each is still likely to be beneficial. So now number four, tip number four, ask to schedule regular medication reviews with your health provider. So it's great to have a medication review at certain high importance times, such as after a hospitalization, after a major change in health status. And it's also a great idea to just make it part of your kind of chronic medical care in a way to have regular scheduled medication reviews for older adults. So just as you might do a you know regular review of your finances or the state of your house about once a year uh, with a suitable expert who can advise you, uh, it's good to do a regular medication review with your health provider. Now, how often to do it? I think for most older adults, about once a year is probably a good benchmark. People who are not taking many medications, who have had very few changes, whose health is stable, maybe they don't need it quite as often. 
and people who are taking lots of medications and their medications are often changing or things have been changing, maybe more often would be good. And I do have a five-step process that I wrote about a few years ago to help you prepare for a useful medication review. And I will post a link to it in the show notes. And then my last suggestion, number five, is regularly ask about deprescribing. So, and I say this because ideally with a medication review, <laughs> the patient and health provider would identify medications that maybe aren't necessary and deprescribe them. But the truth is that the deprescribing isn't necessarily going to happen unless, again, you ask about it and express interest. So deprescribing is really about being a little bit more proactive. And it's not just reviewing the medication list and saying, do we know why each of these are prescribed? How's that going? But it's really about looking at the list and saying, so are all of these absolutely necessary? Could any of them perhaps be reduced or stopped? And as geriatricians, we're very interested in that because we know that overall, more medications tends to lead to more risk, either of side effects or of interactions. And it also creates more hassles for older adults. Uh, it is more complicated to have to consistently take more medications. And when we are able to reduce somebody's medication list, first of all, we can often reduce their risk of falls or, or other sort of problems associated with many of the medications older people take. But when we have a simpler, shorter list, it becomes more uh, first of all, it's more affordable, right, for your monthly drug bill, but also it becomes just more feasible to keep track of that medication and make sure an older person and family are able to administer it consistently and check in if something's not going right. So I really want to take this opportunity to, again, make a pitch for deprescribing, which means reducing or stopping medications that may not be beneficial or may be causing harm to maintain or improve the quality of life. So for more on deprescribing, Again, we had Dr. Tannenbaum, who's been a champion of this on episode 46. We have a related article. And I also want to, again, put in a plug for the Canadian Deprescribing Network's brochures because they have designed and tested brochures that are specifically for older adults and the public to help bring up this conversation about deprescribing with your regular clinician. And their brochures include, they have a brochure on antipsychotic medications, on anticholinergic medications for allergies and itchiness, medications like diphenhydramine, brand name Benadryl. They have one on medications for type 2 diabetes, the ones that lower blood sugar a lot. They have a brochure on opioids for chronic non-cancer pain, and they have one on sleeping pills and anti-anxiety medications, so benzodiazepines, and then one on proton pump inhibitors. And what is especially great about these brochures is that most of them include suggestions on how to successfully reduce the dose. And that's important because many doctors actually have had very little training in how to reduce the dose, and that's sometimes one of the factors that makes it harder for them to stop something is that they, you know, the extra work of thinking, well, how would this be reduced is kind of an impediment. And so the brochures are designed to overcome that. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this follow-up episode on the beers criteria 2019. So again, I'm sorry that the full list currently isn't available. 
But hopefully uh, I have tried to provide in this episode and in the related article a list of the medications that I think are the most high yield to look out for. And then I want to encourage you to ask your pharmacist, ask your health provider for help identifying which of your medications might be on the beers list. And then you'll be equipped to go through this process of just having thoughtful conversations about you know, should I really continue this? What would be the alternatives? And I know that uh, some people have commented um, on the article on Better Health While Aging saying that they're in their mid-60s and they've been taking some of these medications already for years and what should they do now? So uh, as Dr. Steinman says, the mentioned in his interview, the, the Beers criteria is for older adults, which they defined as people age 65 and older. And that is somewhat of an arbitrary cutoff. It's not that when you turn 65, you magically become much more sensitive to all these medications. The reason why we have the Beers criteria is because everybody, as they get older, becomes more susceptible to side effects and problems. And that's just because the body becomes less resilient and robust. So no, if you've turn 65, you're not magically going to have more problems from your medications that you've been taking for a while. And you should realize that that just because you tolerated a medication well for 20 years between the ages of 40 and 60 doesn't mean that you won't become more vulnerable to the side effects and problems when you go from 65 to, to 85. Uh, so if you are uh, an older person who is in you know, your 60s or early 70s or even older, this is the time to be thinking about tapering off these medications and finding other safer ways to manage the problem long term. Because I can tell you that you know, I often see patients who are in their mid-80s or late-80s on these medications, and especially if they have started to develop any kind of memory problem, it becomes really hard to discontinue these medications because especially the ones for sleep or anxiety, people understandably become more anxious as the medications reduce and they just have less mental reserve to deal with it. And they're less able to participate in the kind of non-drug methods that we would recommend to treat anxiety or insomnia or some of these other other conditions, or if they're being cared for by their family, their family already has their hands full, and now doing something you know more complicated is just um, is tough because people don't have the bandwidth. So, so yes, I want to say that if you if you are on these medicines and you feel fine, uh, still consider you know consider this as an as an opportunity to perhaps you know over a year or two slowly work your way off as many of them as you can if possible. I mean, some people do have difficult conditions, severe allergic conditions or inflammatory conditions where they've tried alternative medications or alternative approaches and it's really not possible. And, and that's okay, but that's, that's really what we want. We want it to be a carefully considered decision where the likely benefits do outweigh the likely risks because these medicines are on the list because in most older adults, the likely benefits do not outweigh the likely risks. And for a certain number of older adults, that's not going to be true. So if you or your loved one is on these medicines, you want to make sure that that's been thought about and that you fall into that category for which it actually does make sense to accept that risk of side effects that these medications come with. So I hope these two episodes have been helpful to you. 
We are, of course, working hard in healthcare to get better on our side about using medications safely in older adults. And I know that with your help and you having a better understanding and knowledge of this, we're going to get there sooner. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.